The constant energy, the tight turns and bustle of the city. Some are just happy to survive it. Others were destined to conquer it. The Lexus UX and UX F Sport crossovers with a 33 MPG combined estimate and the most advanced standard safety system in its class. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Click the banner to discover more. 2020 UX versus 2019 and 2020 competitors. Information from manufacturer's websites as of 8 13 2019. 2020 Lexus UX 200, EPA 29 City, 37 Highway, 33 combined MPG estimates. Actual mileage will vary. for listening to Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast, keeping you up to date with the latest in American soccer. And don't forget to subscribe. Hello and welcome to Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast. I'm Stephen Jodrand. And I'm Jake Watroba. For many of our listeners, you know Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast as a soccer podcast that solely focuses on the national teams, domestic soccer, and the latest news and rumors. However, today's focus is going to be a little different as we are taking a deep dive and discussing the devastating bushfires in Australia and the unique opportunity that is football for fires. Over the course of the last couple of weeks, Jake and I were able to speak with a number of wildfire experts, including Dr. Mike Flanagan from the University of Alberta and the manager of planning and predictive services of the New South Wales Rural Fire Service, Dr. Simon Hemstra. Plus, we spoke with Lou Stika, the organizer for Football for Fires, and Aleko Eskandarian, who will be participating in the charity soccer match. Aleko is a former American soccer player in Major League Soccer and currently director at MLS's Player Relations and Competition Department. I wanted to add to something that was just said. We at Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast strive to be as transparent and honest as possible. We've been working on this project for the past couple of weeks, and with information constantly changing, we did our best to present the latest and most up-to-date information and figures to try and paint a picture of what is going on in Australia. Now, before we get any further, if this is your first time listening, welcome. You can follow us on Twitter at UncSamSoccerPod. Make sure you send in your thoughts from today's show or even any soccer thoughts you may have because I'm sure there are plenty uh, to talk about. And if you haven't done so already, please hit that subscribe button and leave a five-star review. Now, let's get to today's show. The devastation left from the bushfires in Australia have been simply jaw-dropping. Since September 2019, the fires in Australia have burned more than 29.6 million acres, killing at least 34 lives and experts estimating more than 1 billion animals, according to NBC News. Starting the weekend of February 8th, a wide band of rain swept through New South Wales, and days after, we got news from Rob Rogers, the Deputy Commissioner of the New South Wales Rural Fire Service, stating that all fires are contained. Looking at some of the videos and some of the pictures that have been captured through the months and weeks, almost feel like a scene from the latest Hollywood blockbuster, 
as day turns into night in a matter of minutes, with smoke stretching out thousands of miles to South America and the heartbreak of animals on the run. Listeners, what struck Stephen and I was how little we actually knew about wildfires. To provide us with more insight, Stephen and I spoke with Dr. Mike Flanagan. Dr. Mike Flanagan is a professor with the Department of Renewable Resources at the University of Alberta and the director of the Canadian Partnership for Wildland Fire Service located at the University of Alberta. Dr. Flanagan's primary research interests include fire and weather climate interactions, including the potential impact of climate change, lightning ignited forest fires, landscape fire modeling, and interactions between vegetation, fire, and weather. He truly is a wildfire expert and blew us away with the complexity of wildfires. Here's our chat from a couple weeks ago. And Mike, let's dive right in here. In general, how concerning are wildfires for the environment? Well, if you include people in the environment, they're very concerning. I mean, some ecosystems, uh, like the boreal forest, like the the grasslands, uh, western forests, they're used to fire, and they survive and even thrive in a regime of semi-regular fire. In other areas, like the tropical rainforest, Fire is not part of the natural ecosystem, so it's a real problem when you get fire there because the species, uh, both you know the trees as well as animals, aren't used to fire. So we, we often hear that wildfires provide benefits anytime I'm in a conversation with people or we're up in the forest or there was in, in, the, in the Rocky Mountains, for example, they say, oh, this patch burned down. Somebody would always mention, well, you know, forest fires provide a benefit to in the environment. So what are the benefits to the environment in case of a wildfire? Yeah, people like to put values on fire, whether it's good or bad. And, you know, we've lived through an age of Smokey the Bear where he has two messages. And the first message is you can prevent forest fires or only you can prevent forest fires. And that's a good message. It's prevention. The second message is that fire is bad okay and fire is neither good nor bad it's natural in many of these ecosystems so the answer really depends on where that fire is okay in some places like the tropical rainforest it's not a good thing at all whereas in other places like grasslands boreal forests or western forests in western united states most of those fires is natural and it can kill bugs and disease, like we've had mountain pine beetle and other insect outbreaks. So it resets the clock. It's just the cycle of life. It's uh, the Lion King uh, kind of thing. It's, uh, you know, it's just Mother Nature doing her thing. And, uh, you know, what the problem becomes is when uh, people, our communities, our development, infrastructure, industry intersects or interacts with wildland fire, then we have a problem and we're seeing more and more problems because there's more development on the landscape and recently there's more fire on the landscape. Now, Mike, last spring we saw wildfires in Alberta burn nearly uh, 2 million acres uh, of land. And now in Australia, according to the BBC, as of January 31st, 27.2 million acres of land have been burned too. 
Uh, can you talk about what makes wildfires difficult to contain and ultimately extinguish? Okay, so maybe I'll even start even I'll back up from this. And whether you're in Australia, Alberta, California, or the Amazon, you need three ingredients for a wildfire. The fuel, that's the vegetation, the stuff that burns, the needles, the leaves, the shrubs, the trees. How much you have, what type it is, those are important, but probably most importantly, how dry that fuel is. That's the critical point. Second, you need ignition, lightning or people. And third, you need conducive weather. Generally, we say hot, dry, and windy, but you can get away with just dry and windy. You get all three ingredients and you can have a fire, whether you're in Australia or Alberta. So what's going on here is, especially in Australia, is unprecedented. Our spring was the second most active fire season in recent history. But what's going on in Australia, as you mentioned those numbers, like we were 2 million acres and it was like 27 million acres and growing. It's, you know, January and early February continues to be very active in Australia. It's their summer, so it's their fire season. And what is happening is unprecedented. There is no historical analog. It's got climate change fingerprints all over it. And the reason is it's hot and dry. And in particular, what we're seeing, and whether it's in Canada or Western United States, the warmer it gets, the more fire we see. And people say, well, why is temperature so important? You know, they understand wind, and wind is really important on individual fire. But what I'm talking about here is fire over a large area, like California or Western United States or Southeastern Australia, over a longer period of time, like a month or a fire season, and there, temperature becomes most important. And so there are three reasons. You'll find out fire people love threes, okay? So there's three reasons for this. There was three ingredients, and now there's three reasons for warmer temperatures. The warmer it gets, the more lightning you see. And all things considered, the more lightning, the more fires you have. Uh, and in Australia, a number of these dangerous fires were started by lightning. Second, the warmer it is, the longer the fire season. We're definitely seeing that where I live in Alberta. And, you know, Australia have very early fire season start this year. So warmer temperatures, longer fire seasons. Last, and probably the, the most uh, convoluted, is the warmer it gets, the drier the fuels get. And unless there's increases in precipitation, that's because the atmosphere gets more efficient at sucking the moisture out of the fuels when it's really hot. And, you know, you put a towel on your clothesline, if people still use clotheslines these days, if it's hot, dry, and windy, uh, that towel dries off really quickly, okay? If it's cool, it doesn't dry as, as quickly. So now what's really important here is these drier fuels because it means there's more, it's easier for a fire to start, easier for a fire to spread, and it means more fuels available to burn, which means it's more intense. It's a higher intensity fire. So, and the higher the intensity, the more difficult to impossible it is to put that fire out. A lot of the public has a misconception that we can stop all the fires all the time. And that's just not true. Uh, Western United States, 1% of the fires burn, 99% of the area burned. The tail wags the dog. It's all about the extremes. And those extremes are those high-intensity fires. You see pictures of planes dropping retardant on a fire, and you think it's putting a fire out. If it's small, it does put it out. If it's big, then you might as well spit on a campfire or drop wet American dollar bills on it because you're not doing any good. You're just wasting money. Okay. And so once a fire is up and running, um, there's very little we can do through direct attack 
just get out of the way. And if you have time, you can do burnout operations. So, Mike, with the changes that we're seeing in the atmosphere, the increased temperature, are we seeing wildfires grow in places that typically don't see wildfires? So we are seeing like the Amazon, but those fires are deliberately set for land clearing purposes. We're seeing peat fires in Indonesia for years. Some of these fires have been burning for 30 years because they drained them uh, for palm oil production, and now they can't put them up. Uh, so, and these are areas that traditionally fires were either exceedingly rare or non-existent. This 2019, in above the tree line, there was more forest fires than we've ever seen. Um, Tundra fires were, were not as active as some previous years, but the forest fires were like a factor of four more than what we've ever seen. There's fires in Greenland. Um, there was fires February 2019 in Winnie the Pooh's 100-acre woods. I mean, England has a fire problem? Really? Yes, uh, it does. And it's hard for people to believe this. Here's another one, Hawaii. Okay? The Hawaiian Islands have had lots of fire recently. Even evacuations, it's, um, and people say, oh, even Kauai? And yeah, yes, even Kauai. And the reason is not just because of the weather, but because of invasive grasses that are very fire prone, out competing the natural vegetation. And then they get fire, it just is a, a positive feedback cycle. So you get more and more invasive grasses and more and more fire. So these are some of the places in the world where we're seeing fire where we, we're seeing more of it, or we're seeing it where we've never seen it before, at least in the recent past. Hey, Mike, you mentioned uh, earlier that the fires that are going on in Australia are, are, are uh, unprecedented. And when we mentioned, you know, the 27 million acres of land that have been burned, uh, we have over, uh, you know, an estimated 1 billion animals have been killed. What would you say is the difference with uh, the Australian uh, bushfires going on right now? versus some of the ones we've seen in the past? So they have uh, a variety of vegetation types. And there's Australia is a continent and a country. It, it's large. It's you know around the size of Canada, United States. It's smaller than Canada. And it's very similar to the United States in size. So there's a lot of variety. And up north, there's a lot of Aboriginal burning that goes on. And, you know, that landscape seems to be doing quite well uh, because of traditional practices. There's the rainforest in Queensland, and there was a number of fires at the beginning of the fire season in the tropical rainforest in Queensland that is exceedingly rare. Okay. And then you have lots of uh, grass, uh, and you have lots of eucalypts. There's about 100 different species of eucalypts. Many of them are very fire-prone. Um, they're kind of like our conifer forests in, in Canada and Western United States. They promote what we call crown fires. What that means is the fire spreads from the forest floor up into the tops or the crowns of the tree. And you, if you've seen video or pictures recently from Australia, you see these massive flames, uh, you know, hundreds of meters, hundreds of yards, you know, multiplied by three for feet, just incredible flaming. And that's these crown fires, which you, some eucalypts do promote. So, you know, we're seeing a lot more fire. 27 million is just much more than we've seen in any recent year. And we're seeing more 
intensity of fires, these crown fires, which are basically impossible to stop. And then you get something called pyrocumulonimbus. It's a mouthful. That means a fire-generated thunderstorm. These are very intense, very erratic. You can't put them out yet. You know, and there's been numerous examples of these this year in Australia and last year. And they've emitted so much smoke into the stratosphere and atmosphere, it's like a moderate-sized volcano. And the smoke has encircled the globe. It went around, it went to New Zealand, but soot on their glaciers in New Zealand, and then went to South America, Africa, and then back to Australia. Okay? So these are just massive, high-energy fires that, uh, you know, that's why there's no historical analog of this happening. Why it's happening? Largely climate change is, is driving this, um, as well as more people uh, that are starting fires. But as I mentioned, a number were lightning started as well. So Mother Nature, you know, starts fires as well as we do. Talking about the smoke that has circled the globe, how is that going to affect atmospheric conditions for humans and animals? The more we find out about wildland fire smoke, the more we find out how bad it is for it. And even though already... You know, globally, there are over 330,000 deaths attributed to wildland fire smoke, mostly in Southeast Asia, mostly due to those peat fires I was talking about. So it's not good for us. Um, but it also, you know, if you put enough smoke into the atmosphere, high up in the atmosphere, it can stay there for months or possibly years, and it blocks solar radiation. So it actually causes regional cooling where that smoke is. But on the flip side, checks and balances in the, you know, in the natural system. It deposits soot, you know, ash on glaciers and snow and ice, which makes it warm up quicker when it gets sun on it and it speeds up the melting process. So it's a warming agent. So which one wins, it's hard to say, but it's, you know, it's not good. And, you know, Sydney, Australia has had bad air quality for months. And there will be repercussions, um, you know, for the next few years on people's health. And whether, you know, we're talking about pregnancies being affected or people with respiratory problems, the longer you're exposed, the more damage that is done. And, and Mike, how does the environment recover from something like this? So how do these, these areas that are being burned down in Australia, how do they recover from these, these massive bushfires that are, that are sweeping the country? So, you know, some of these systems are used to fire and they'll sprout and regenerate. And it won't be a, from a, you know, looking at the vegetation, it won't be a big problem. But other areas, you know, it's like uh, resetting the, the landscape. We're not sure what's going to come back. And it could be like a desert. Um, we're starting to see that in the boreal too, where we get what we call a kind of a double whammy effect. You get one fire and then you get another fire in close succession. So the, it hasn't had time to recover from that first fire and the second fire goes through and it's like a desert. And how long that's going to take to regenerate? Will it come back to what it was before? Will it be a transition or a catalyst for change? We're not sure. Um, and, you know, it depends on many factors. Um, some species have serotonous cones. Okay, in Canada we have species in the United States where it actually needs fire to open the cones, and they usually do quite well after fire. 
unless you get this double whammy effect. But I have colleagues in Australia, and they've sent me pictures. And some pictures, I see grass coming up in recently burned areas. In other areas, it looks like a desert. So we have to wait and see. Something that caught my ears when you were talking about was the the ongoing fight uh, against fires. Obviously, you mentioned how uh, something about just pouring wet dollar bills. <laughs> so when when fires are ongoing, I mean, a- apart from getting out of the way, is there really anything that humans can do to contain the fire? Or is it just one of those things where you just have to play it play it by ear and see what, what the fire does? So there are things you can do. As I mentioned, the direct attack at the where the most intense part is kind of pointless, but at the sides of the fire, which we call the flanks or the back, if it's lower intensity, we can try and contain it there. Also, we use a tactic called burnout operations. And so what you do is you get in front of where the wildfire is spreading, and it's spreading in the direction of the wind, and you burn a fire that backs into the wind, so it's lower intensity and hopefully you can manage it. And then when the wildfire and this burnout operation meet, there's no fuel and you put it out. But I think the bigger picture is what can we do as a society to prevent these fires from burning down our town, whether you're in California or Canada or Australia. And there are things we can do. And, you know, like I want to go back to the three ingredients. Uh, we can't do anything about day-to-day weather. Uh, it is what it is. So the climate change aspect, the global community has got to get their act together so that we're, we'll see less of these extreme conditions. Second, we can't do anything about lightning, okay? but we can do things about people-caused fires. Every person-caused fire is preventable. So whether it's power lines in California or railways in Canada or campfires, what have you, these are preventable. And, you know, when we do emergency management, there's different phases, prevention, mitigation, preparedness, response, recovery, and review. Fire spends almost all their money on response, and we need to do more in prevention, education programs, for example. Um, So that's one area. And the other area is, you know, our communities can be more fire resilient with building materials. And a lot of this is going on in California. You can manage fuels around the vegetation around the community to make it less likely that you'll get a high-intensity fire spreading into your community. There's nothing we can do to make you know, our communities fireproof, but we can do a lot of things to make them uh, fire resilient. A program in the United States called FireWise. We have Fire Smart in Canada, same kind of principles, education, building materials. You can use sprinklers. There's all sorts of ways we can be better prepared. Every community should have an emergency plan for fire and flooding and for every other type of emergencies and evacuations. So it's a multifaceted problem that needs a multifaceted approach. And we are working towards that, but we still have a long way to go. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time today to uh, for, uh, to join us. Uh, before we let you go, is there anything else you'd like to add or uh, plug away? So, you know, we just have to learn to live with fire. I mean, you know, people may not want to hear that, but fire has always been part of our landscape in Canada and the United States, and it will continue to be in the future. In fact, we'll see a lot more of it, but, you know, we better be prepared.
We want to thank Dr. Mike Flanagan again for joining the show and providing his expertise. Mike spoke on how some animal and plant species were able to recover rather quickly after wildfires and even survive them. Now, Stephen, check this out. A species of fluorescent slug found only on a single mountaintop in northern New South Wales survived the bushfires that burnt through much of its alpine habitat. It was feared they could have been wiped out, but National Parks and Wildlife Service Rangers spotted about 60, according to the organization's Facebook page. In the post, it said, They may not be as cute as koalas or wallabies, but this species also plays an important role in its ecosystem. In a recent Guardian post, Australian Museum malacologist Frank Kohler said they were able to survive by retreating into rock crevices. However, there are many ongoing worries. In a February 11th report by Australia's Department of Agriculture, Water, and the Environment, experts identified a provisional list of 113 animal species as the highest priorities for urgent management intervention over the months following the bushfires in southern and eastern Australia. They need urgent help as most have lost at least 30% of their habitat and many lost substantially more. The provisional list includes 13 bird, 19 mammal, 20 reptile, 17 frog, 5 invertebrate, 22 crayfish, and 17 fish species. And some species were categorized as imminent risk of extinction because almost all of their habitat had been destroyed. These included the Pew's frog, Blue Mountains water skink, and the Kangaroo Island dunnart. Jake, that is just wild. Wow. Yeah, Stephen, it's incredibly sad as well. But after we had spoken with Mike Flanagan, you wanted to get more insight into the situation in Australia, particularly with local communities and how the fires are dealt with. And that I did. Meet Dr. Simon Hempstra. In his current role as Manager Planning and Predictive Services, he manages a team that is responsible for state research policy and training for areas including bushfire risk management, community planning, prescribed burn planning, environmental assessment, fire behavior analysis, and bushfire impact analysis. Simon is the chair of the AFAC Predictive Services Group, a member of the National Fire Danger Rating Review Working Group, chair of the Climate Change Working Group, and lead end user of the Bush Fire and Natural Hazards NRC Fire Behavior Research Stream. When I spoke with him on February 7th, the fires were still burning, but he was in a more positive spirit very happy at the moment because we're pleased to see a little bit of rain and kind of coming towards the end of what's been a very long season. More on the rain and the good news that came from it regarding the containment of the fires in a moment. For over a hundred years, the Rural Fire Service has fought fires in New South Wales. It is widely acknowledged as the largest volunteer fire service in the world, providing fire and emergency services to approximately 95% of New South Wales. This is approximately 309,125 square miles, or 10.4% of the Australian landmass. 
The service aims to reduce the likelihood and consequence of fires, which includes developing and implementing comprehensive risk management programs to reduce bushfire hazards, reduce fire ignitions, and development of regulation for bushfire-prone areas. They will fight fires ranging from a bushfire to a structure fire. The organization has over 2,100 rural fire brigades and a total volunteer membership of approximately 72,000. And they're ready to do anything from fighting fires to search and rescue. It depends on the type of fire, how we fight it, and um, what sort of resources we use. Um, if, uh, if we get early detection of a fire, it'll be a direct attack onto the actual flames and um, trying to keep fires small. And so if there's a fire uh, close to a road and we can get a, a brigade and a tanker there, we'll... Um, will directly contain those fires and sometimes when conditions are favourable and safe enough we may um, fly in remote area teams in helicopters who will directly work on a, a, a smaller fire. Um, as, as fires get bigger we'll need to pull back and have um, a, uh, a more strategic view and we may be trying to slow the fire down using aircraft with water bombers or retardant um, but generally, once the fires get large, the, the main way we contain them is by backburning. And, and so that's finding a hard containment line, so a, 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 either a road or a track or creating a mineral earth break using machinery and then burning the vegetation back against the wind in towards that fire. So we try and remove the fuel before that fire arrives at that edge. And this season, they've been very busy. We've had over 150 days of continuous major operations, so um, declared uh, major fire incidents, and um, we've burnt, have had probably in excess of 5 million hectares of, of vegetation burnt, ex uh, quite a lot of losses of, of property and life. It's been uh, probably the most significant season we've ever faced as an agency. Although the fires are contained, New South Wales is one of the worst-hit states from the fires. The fires impacted more than 12 million acres, destroying thousands of homes and forcing thousands to seek shelter elsewhere. More than 37% of the National Park Estate has been impacted. In key bioregions, the figure is well over 40% according to the New South Wales Department of Planning, Industry and Environment. Depending on the fire activity and date, more than 1,600 firefighters at a given time could work on the fires and shore up containment lines. For New South Wales, this fire season has been much different than others. It's been extraordinarily challenging for us. Uh, I, one of the main issues we've had was uh, a very long period of drought uh, coming into this season. Um, we had our, our fuel state was in... Uh, a, a, a extreme state of dryness and um, basically in, in New South Wales the, the predominant sort of vegetation types will get fire is either in uh, grass or forest fires. Uh, as far as coming into this season as, uh, our concern for grass fires was extremely low because there was no grass. It was uh, because of the drought uh, a lot of the, uh, the grassy areas were just uh, bare dirt paddocks uh, but the forested areas in the Euclid Forest in New South Wales, they uh, have a, a, a 
can can build up quite high fuel loads of uh, leaf litter and um, sticks and shrubs and and all of that vegetation was a very drought stressed and had very low moisture. So um, coming into the season, we had a lot of concern this year because of that drought. As Jake mentioned earlier, animals were significantly impacted, and thousands of Australians have been too. There's been a lot of impacts on on people from these fires. Um, the the stress and preparation and and uh, you know dealing with the, um, the the fire during the event for the community has been uh, very challenging. Um, there's been significant losses associated with these fires. Um, probably uh, some of the highest in our country's history. Um, for for us in New South Wales, we uh, you know, in our worst sort of seasons that we'd ever seen in the past, a couple of hundred homes would be, a, uh, you know, an expectation for a bad season. This year, we've lost uh, in excess of 2,400 homes, but there've been um, a, a huge number of facilities that have also been impacted, um, you know, schools and community halls and um uh, factories and and so an enormous amount of that sort of infrastructure, and also outbuildings and farm sheds and over five thousand um, sort of other outbuildings have been destroyed. As far as this, um, there have been thousands of properties also damaged, although not destroyed, damaged. So there's been quite a significant impact on that side of things, and is really going to affect people. Um, the it, it's affected people's livelihoods in in, in various ways. The, the uh, actual fires and damage has, has had impact. We've lost enormous areas of, uh, of cropping land and grazing land. We've lost um, uh, forestry and uh, timber plantations have been damaged. Um, and, and, and also other effects uh, just from the smoke alone, there've been um, effects on things like the wine industry and like, so quite a, quite a lot of impacts there. But probably most tragically has been the the loss of life. Hit us very hard, I'd say, the, the, the that loss. The loss of life is always tragic. However, this hasn't been the deadliest fire to hit Australia. In 2009, what became known as the Black Saturday bushfires in the Australian state of Victoria, 173 souls lost their lives. There's been a lot of progress, research, and understanding of bushfires, and it has helped this season. Fire is a common aspect of the Australian landscape. Um, our vegetation is um, is actually adapted for fire, and and so it's it's not unexpected that we're we're going to experience fire. And we with our our building and construction design is 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 increasingly improving, but um, has always really considered the fact that uh, fires are present and there's. A whole lot of things that people would do as far as um, construction standard to improve the survivability of their structure uh, uh, from, from the impacts of fire. Uh, and there are things also that people can do to actively protect their property and, uh, you know, making sure they've got uh, spare water and uh, or, or firefighting pumps and ability to, to uh, try and uh, save property during a, a, a normal fire. I think the challenge we've had this year is the fires have been 
so extreme and the, and so dangerous that we've been advising the community not to stay. And in, and in, and in many instances, we've been issuing um, emergency warnings or leave early warnings that, that the, the potential impacts of these fires have been uh, beyond what any construction standard we have and and really trying to prioritise saving human life over property. And um, quite in interestingly, uh, we've done a lot of research on the expected, when you lose a certain number of houses, how what's the, the equivalent number of lives that would occur? And going back over the last 100 years, um, with, with a certain number of homes, you would expect a certain number of fatalities. And what probably, although as tragic as it is, the fatalities we've seen this season, um, one of the, the good news stories, I suppose, is that for the number of structures we've lost, we would have anticipated a much higher fatality rate. And I think by early warning and, um, and, and getting uh, alerts into communities and getting them out, out of uh, the dangerous areas has really had an impact on reducing the potential number of fatalities we could have had as such a severe season we face this year. Now on that rain, the state's capital, Sydney, saw 15 inches fall in four days, most rainfall in the last 30 years. It is the equivalent of a four-month total, said the Bureau of Meteorology. Several towns had to be evacuated, more than 50 schools closed. Over 100,000 homes lost power during the storms. But the rain helped extinguish many fires to the point where they are all contained. I reached back out to Simon on February 10th, and he was very much relieved. He commented saying, NSW has had massive amounts of rainfall from Thursday to Sunday. This is the most positive news we've had in some time. This rainfall has assisted firefighters to put out over 30 fires since Friday. Some of these blazes have been burning for weeks and even months. Despite the positive news of the containment of the fires, much relief is still needed. Stephen, I have to say it's 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 really hard to put into words the ups and downs. Simon, the rural fire service, and, and what Australians are going through. That is absolutely correct, and the fight continues daily. The rain absolutely helped, but it was extreme rain. That has caused flooding, and now there's damage from that too. But again, I want to reiterate, Simon was very happy to get the rain and put out a lot of these fires. Yeah, I, I bet. And Stephen, talking about that damage from the rain, with more than 12 inches of rain that had fallen in eastern Australia in just over 48 hours on February 8th and 9th, it had opened up the possibility for mudslides on hillsides that were stripped of vegetation due to the fires. It is just hard to imagine what those who are affected by all this are going through. Now, Jake, have you ever heard of a fire-generated thunderstorm? I, I can't say that I have. Nor did I. Simon talked about it, and I wasn't able to include it in the original story, but I did want to play it because it's so interesting so one of the phenomena that we've been noticing has been increasing over recent years is the, the development of uh, fire generated thunderstorms or uh, in, in this case what happens is under certain conditions if a fire gets quite large and hot enough and the and the atmosphere is unstable 
the fire can generate its own thunderstorm and the the smoke column can reach heights of uh, 16 to 18 kilometres in height and the fire it, that then generates very strong winds and destructive winds and also starts throwing um, embers in front of the fire tens of kilometres uh, so embers and new spot fire started in front of the fire. These thunderstorms can also um, generate lightning and uh, on, on the extremely hot days, we don't get much rain with, the, with these, these thunderstorms. And so the, the lightning can also start other ignitions and they're very dangerous events as far as um, for anyone operating, working or community around the fire ground. Um, and they can also be quite damaging to structures and, and really massively increase the severity of the fire. So we've been doing a lot of work in recent years on better trying to predict and understand and warn uh, our fire operations in the community with these sort of events. And uh, it's something we're seeing increasingly uh, at, at, on fire grounds. This year we had many instances of uh, fire generator thunderstorms associated with the fires we had. Wow, that's... That is uh, simply amazing there, Stephen. Now, before we get to Football for Fires, we want to thank Dr. Simon Hemstra for giving us his time. As you can imagine, he's been very busy with helping the relief effort in New South Wales. Stephen, let's get to the soccer charity match, Football for Fires. We had the opportunity to speak with Director of Tribal Sports Group and organizer for Football for Fires, Lou Stika. Yeah, Lou is a football agent with connections all around the world, and one Sunday morning he realized he wanted to do something about the bushfires. Sitting on my laptop on an early Sunday morning, three or four weeks ago, um, obviously I, uh, I've been working in football a long time, I'm a, uh, but I'm very much a football fan, and as a, any football fan, that growing up in Australia at this time of the day, it's uh, all the big games overseas are finished. And there are a couple of soccer players that uh, I follow that have been really texting and tweeting heavily about what's going on in the world uh, with our environments and particularly focused on the bushfires here in Australia. So I woke up about this time four weeks ago and I said, oh, bugger it, I'm going to do something about it. I rang uh, my mate who's the the CEO of ANZ Stadium. It's a venue that I've brought countless uh, international soccer games, including your own LA Galaxy with David Beckham in 2007 uh, to a full house, mind you, 85,000 people. So it's a big stadium. I do a lot of work there. I rang him and I said, look, Daryl, I've got this idea. What do you think? Can you help me out? He goes, great idea, Lou. I'll give you the stadium at no cost. And so uh, from that, we've just started... uh, calling my network of people around the world, um, people that, you know, that manage footballers or, or ex-footballers, including another one in the States, uh, a good friend of mine, Eric Stover from New York, who um, I've been dealing with for a, quite a while from when he was at New York Red Bulls and um, in latter times when uh, he was running New York Cosmos and said, okay, guys, I'm thinking of doing this. Um, I need some players. I'd like to invite you to come out. And, and I've got my first player and then the second one and the third one. And now we, we've got to a stage where we've got about 24 players that have committed to coming over to play. Uh, mind you, none of them are being paid. I've said to them straight up front, guys, I want to invite you. 
I'll fly you over. I'll put you up in a hotel. But there's no match fees because we're doing this to raise money, um, you know, in a sense for charity. Now, what makes this uh, match super interesting is it will feature some of the biggest former names in the game, including Claudio Marquisio, Dwight York, and Didier Drogba. Looking at the current roster, you could say it's almost like a UN meeting with the different nationalities that are being represented in this match. Lewis put together a list of players that touch every corner of the globe, and there's a reason why he did it. I've tried to represent as many different countries because what we want is we want we want this to very much to be seen as a, a the international football community coming out to help uh, the country. A couple of other names: Park Ji Sung, uh, absolute legend in Korea, played for Manchester United, uh, an unknown to people outside of Vietnam, but very much. Um, the David Beckham of Vietnam, a chap called Lee Kong Vin, uh, played for their national team, just recently retired. Um, two uh, members of the Czech national team, uh, Vladimir Smitsa and Patrick Berger, who are legends at Liverpool Football Club. And the list goes on. Uh, a Norwegian centre forward who played for Chelsea, uh, Torre Andre Flo. It just keeps on going and going. And, and look, there are more names that uh, we're adding to it. I want to get to about 36. Uh, a lot of these guys, um, look, you know, have retired, so they're not going to be able to run out 90 minutes. Plus, we want to give the fans a real lot of entertainment. So I thought we'd get 32, 34, 36 players. That way everyone could inter- interchange themselves on and off like basketball um, and keep uh, keep the fans excited. We've secured two coaches as well. One is the national team coach of Australia, the current national coach, a gentleman called Graham Arnold, and an absolute legend in Australian soccer, uh, the guy that uh, took us to the 2006 World Cup, a uh, dramatic pe- uh, penalty uh, shootout here at ANZ Stadium, um, uh, the great Goose Hiddink from Holland. He's uh, signed on as well. Um, in fact, I got a phone call from uh, his representative last night to say that Gus doesn't want a flight, doesn't want a hotel uh, to be paid for out of the game. He wants to pay for it himself and let it be known that um, he's basically donating back into the fund. So the response has been staggering, to be completely honest. And there's a pretty strong connection to Major League Soccer in the U.S. men's national team. Again, I went to my good friend, Eric Stover, and I said, look, Eric, this is what I'm doing. Uh, can you team me up with some uh, footballers that you, you think uh, could do the job? First one was um, Dwayne D. Rosario, four-time MLS uh, Cup winner and an MLS uh, MVP. Um, he he um, he came on board straight away. The next one was Aleko Eskandarian, who works at Major League Soccer. Uh, same thing, he... Um, he uh, got on board straight away. Uh, last week, we captured a big one uh, in Didier Drogba, obviously made his name in, in England with Chelsea, but had a great uh, end of his career in the MLS. Stephen, you spoke with Aleko Eskandarian about the opportunity of playing in football for Fires. Yeah, I did. And originally, he wasn't even going to play in this match. I basically was reached out to by Lou um, and Eric Stover, who I used to work with at the New York Cosmos, and they mentioned uh, the cause and the fundraiser and, and putting this game together. And um, initially, I was just helping to put them in touch with 
other global superstars around the world um, that we thought would be a good fit and would be willing to play and um, you know put on this spectacle and in, in, uh, in relief for the fires. And then uh, as they're kind of compiling names, uh, Lou basically asked a question and Eric of, hey, would you be interested in playing yourself? And I was like, yeah, I would absolutely love to. Um, I had actually been planning a trip to Australia for quite some time now, but with my hectic schedule, it was always tough to get away. So when the opportunity presented itself, um, I obviously jumped on it and said that I would love to go, first of all, to Australia. And obviously when you add um, what it's for and how much it means to all the families that um, endured so much damage and all the animals and everything, if there's anything we could do to help, um, I'm all for that. So uh, it was a perfect fit. As Lou mentioned, there's a big emphasis on getting an international bull. Aleko is really excited about representing the North American region, MLS, and the USA. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and I think it's really important as well. Um, I know I speak on behalf of, of all MLS players, former players, um, and especially those that are from the U.S. and represent the national team. Everyone is always really you know, I think I should say one of the most important things about, you know, being a pro athlete and having that impact is when you can um, do good for humanity. And so to have some representation from MLS, from uh, the United States, and obviously with my Armenian background as well, which there's a lot of uh, Armenians in Australia as well, actually, um, I think it was just a really important cause for me to be part of. And I'm truly proud to represent that. Jake, these are former world-class athletes. Do you think they can ever tame their competitive nature, especially for a charity match? You know, Stephen, for some, I think that competitive fire will be lit just a little bit during this match. Now, obviously, they won't be going hard into tackles or, or anything like that, but I can imagine some of them will want to showcase that they still got it and, and they want to relive their, their glory days, if you will goals and skill so that's what we want right in these charity matches absolutely 100 percent. but aleko did mention there's a different style of play in these charity matches it's bigger than it's bigger than you right so i think it's very different in that you aren't there to um you kind of you kind of read the the game you read the room a little bit right to see how things are going but ultimately you want to entertain the fans that that is important obviously the the cause is is massive and and we want to raise as much money as possible um to go out to these families and animals and uh everyone that has suffered so um at the end of the day we want to make sure that uh we we live up to the price of admission and uh show that we still got a little bit left in the tank and, and can you know perform but yeah things go out the window a little bit just in terms of tactics and things like that you're not you're not necessarily playing for a draw or anything you want to go out there for your best foot forward and uh put guys in the best position to succeed and show you know their world-class talent that um was able to get them so far so that is that is the ultimate goal in matches like this regardless of how many goals are scored or the players that get involved with the match aleko hopes to bring smiles to everybody attending and those watching uh, hopefully to give the people 